Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. After historically heavy rain, Central California is bracing for massive amounts of runoff from mountain snowmelt. Many other places are also seeing major floods. Several tribes are both cleaning up flood damage and preparing for potential future floods. We'll hear about how tribes are working to anticipate the unpredictable destructive force of floods right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Advocates for Montana's most vulnerable residents are pushing back on a budget plan passed by the U.S. House, saying it would have disastrous consequences for people already faced with trying to find affordable housing in the state. Mark Moran reports. Known as the Limit, Save and Grow Act, the measure would raise the federal debt limit and reduce spending, including cutting rental voucher funding that helps people afford a place to live the program once known as Section 8. Attorney Amy Hall with the Montana Legal Services Association says that would affect 350,000 families, including in Montana. About 1,500 families in Montana would lose access to rental assistance that is provided currently. Those would include older adults, persons with disabilities, families with children, and folks who without rental assistance would be at risk of being unhoused. Hall says Montana's indigenous tribes would also lose funding. According to a White House fact sheet about the GOP proposal, 710 fewer miles of railroad track would also go uninspected next year in Montana alone, and three air traffic control towers would be shuttered if the budget bill becomes law. The U.S. Housing and Urban Development Secretary has said the bill's housing-related cuts would cause mass evictions and predicts up to one million households served by HUD's rental assistance programs could be dropped. Hall says this means as many as 120,000 people could become homeless. All of us in Montana have seen the number of folks who are unhoused rise in all of our communities since COVID hit, and that would only get worse if these funding cuts go into effect. And there would also be cuts to tribal housing programs and HUD programs that combat discrimination. With a Democratic majority in the U.S. Senate, the bill isn't likely to pass in its current form, but critics worry that even debating it will give leverage to partisan budget measures in the future and have a dramatic impact on Montanans already struggling financially. I'm Mark Moran. A tribal college in Arizona has received some national attention this spring for community college excellence, in this case, on the Navajo Nation. Alex Gonzalez has more. Dene College in Saley, Arizona is mentioned in an Aspen Institute report for the work it's doing to boost the local economy in an area without many industry partners or employment opportunities for graduates. Shazia Tabassum Hakim is a microbiology professor at the college and says it's been able to use grant opportunities to invest in economic development and sustainable business practices. Since 2020, Hakim has led a 10-week program to train students to become water scientists in their community. We should be able to train the local workforce because it not only helps the communities to get more out of what they have learned, but also it is needed 
to continue the change because they are going to be uh, examples. Hakim says Danae's water testing program is one example of an initiative that meets Navajo needs but also helps deliver students to potential jobs. She adds the response from students in the community has been overwhelmingly positive. Hakim says her program has led to greater awareness of safe water needs for people living on the reservation. And while the USDA grant that has made the program possible will end this year, she says the college will find a way to continue the work. Given the tribe's history with uranium mining, which led in the past to contaminated water sources and other health-related issues, Hakim says it is paramount that people know how to properly identify water contamination. Support for this reporting was provided by Lumina Foundation. I'm Alex Gonzalez. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for nearly 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Support from the Self-Governance Communication and Education Tribal Consortium, presenting the 2023 Tribal Self-Governance Conference at the River Spirit Resort starting June 26th. Registration closes June 23rd at tribalselfgov.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. Spring runoff is usually a blessing and a precious resource for Native communities, but it can turn disastrous when conditions combine to overwhelm natural and man-made waterways. After decades of drought, the Navajo and Apache reservations in Arizona are now recovering from flooding that destroyed some homes and property. Some tribes in California endured record-breaking rains and are now bracing for overflowing rivers for mountain snowmelt. Tribes are working with state and federal sources to both prepare for such natural disasters and recover from the devastating damage in the wake of rapidly changing weather patterns. Today, we'll hear how tribes are reacting to and preparing for floods. Please join our conversation. Is flooding a problem where you are? Have you had to prepare for the possibility of future floods in your community? We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us first from Fort Defiance, Arizona, is Dr. Crystal Tully Cordova. She's the principal hydrologist for the Navajo Nation Department of Water Resources. She's Dene. Crystal, welcome back to Native America Calling. Thank you, Sean. Happy to be here. It's great to have you, Crystal. And some parts of the Navajo Nation have already been affected by flooding. I know firsthand because, like I mentioned before the show, I was in Chinle, Chinle Arizona last month. What's happening in Chinle now? Have floodwaters receded any? So snowmelt runoff has contributed to the significant impacts of flooding in the community of Chinle, but it's important to think about where is that water coming from. So upstream of Chinle Creek where Canyon Deshaies is located, there are 
uh, systems, the Saley, the Wheatfields, the Whiskey Creek, and the Crystal that contribute to flows in Chinle. This morning at 10 a.m., the flows for discharge is 1,220 cubic feet per second. The stream gauge height at the bridge um, right there by the visitor center was at 3.73 feet. And we've seen the flows about these levels um, over the past couple of weeks for sure. And in Chinle, uh, a significant part of the flooding and limited access to homes was um, from the period of April 21st to um, about the beginning of the middle of the week. And so people are, I mean, conditions are starting to dry out a little. Um, however, those flows continue to run high within the creek itself. So you mentioned 1,220 cubic feet of water moving quickly. Is, how does that compare to what that normal water flow is without flooding? Yeah, so without flooding, that anyone who goes during um, the month of June to visit Canyon de Chez or even residents in the area um, will notice that it's a, a usually a dry creek bed. Um, one of the things that have contributed to the conditions are the above average summer uh, precipitation that we received in the Navajo Nation last year during the summer. And so those soils have really um, gotten to a point of saturation to where a lot of the flows continue to proceed, especially during the winter season. And we also had, you know, a pretty wet fall as well. And so all of those contributions compiled together have definitely created the conditions that we're seeing in Chinle, Arizona. So it sounds like partially what's happening is the ground is already so saturated with water that there's nowhere else for that water to 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 flow into the into the earth so it just flows out is that right? Yes, that's right. And I think in addition to that, it's important to also to think so this is snow melt runoff that we're experiencing and we do have snow tell sites. Snow tell sites are um, a ways for evaluation of snow at two sites upstream of Chinle Creek at both Beaver Springs and at Navajo Whiskey Creek. People can look at this as well on the USDA NRCS website. Um, but with regards to the total period of record, um, and these are systems that were put in in 2010, and in 2000, I mean, over the total period of record, this year, the snow water equivalent was the highest it's ever been since the period of record over, you know, the past uh, 13 years. And so snow water equivalent is really the amount of um, moisture that is within the snow. And so just seeing that historical aspect has contributed to these conditions as well. Okay. Now... You mentioned earlier uh, from about April 21st until earlier this week, there were some people that were displaced. It sounds like, has there been uh, major damage to homes and property at this point? Yeah, so um, there had to be people that were evacuated. Livestock was even evacuated. I talked to a resident um, earlier this week. She was telling me that her sheep had to get evacuated from the region. Um, we did have a lot of help 
um, from outside the Navajo Nation, the Red Cross, Team Rubicon, Apache County uh, was definitely there as well. And within the Navajo Nation, a lot of people mobilized. Uh, we had an emergency operations center that was in operations um, taking care of conditions, being, you know, the chapter youth as well ha did a lot of the work in mobilizing within the communities to address the situation. Um, so definitely there was a lot of help to be able to address the conditions. Um, and there has been damage to homes, uh, a lot of the sediment. So within the Chinle system, there's a lot of sediment. And so once things begin to dry out, a lot of the sediment is there. And, you know, seeing pictures from residents of their house with some of the vehicles that were left there and having sediment, you know, up to halfway up the tail bed of their pickup truck is how high the sediment has buried their vehicles as well. Wow. Wow. Well, it's certainly uh, disheartening to hear about some of that property damage, but it is inspiring to know that it's been such a concerted effort uh, there on the Navajo Nation to uh, address these high waters. And I want to ask you, Crystal, before we move on to our next guest, uh, these snowmelt flows, um, how much of that do you attribute to climate change? Yeah, so definitely with climate change, what we see are both the existence of flooding and drought events, and these can concurrently exist with one another. This morning, I was looking at the drought monitor, and across the Navajo Nation, we still have abnormally dry to severe drought conditions, but at the same time, we're experiencing flooding. And it's important to understand that the magnitude and the frequency of both drought and flooding are ways in which um, the hydrologic impacts can be experienced within the Navajo Nation. But just thinking about climate change impacts in the Navajo Nation in general, you know, what we're seeing is earlier um, snowmelt runoff, as well as decreased snowpack, and definitely seeing the magnitude and the frequencies of both drought and flooding uh, occurring at the same time. And, you know, beyond hydrology, there can be impacts on um, the available water sources, the plants, the animals, and the people themselves of where they get their water. All righty. Well, thank you so much for that update, Crystal. And, uh, we will keep those families uh, in our prayers there in Chin Lee that have uh, been evacuated or are facing some of these property damages and losses that you describe. Let's go ahead now and bring in our next guest who is joining us from Albuquerque, New Mexico, Dr. Lani Sinigini. She's an assistant professor of community and regional planning at the School of Architecture and Planning at the University of New Mexico. She's Dene. Lani, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. Glad to be on here today. Great to have you, Lonnie. Uh, you know, hearing what Crystal describes, uh, these flooding conditions there in Chinle, really begs the question, what sort of systems are there in place that keep water from flooding communities and damaging infrastructure like what we've heard about in Chinle? Yeah, well, I think one of the most important um, systems that Crystal had mentioned before is like monitoring systems. So she had mentioned some of the snow-tail um, stations that are located on the top of the Chiska Mountains. 
um, which really, um, you know, give an idea of like how much snowpack and also other precipitation events um, that are, you know, recorded and what they look like historically and seasonally in different watersheds and, you know, how those correspond. All right, I'm going to go ahead and go back to Crystal again. And, and Crystal, uh, looks like we just lost Lonnie for a moment, but I want to just talk a little bit about the spring runoff because, you know, hearing this show today so far, you would, I think a listener might be thinking, oh, well, this is horrible. This, this runoff and this snow melt, this is bad news. But I mean, there are a lot of benefits to spring runoff. Are there not? Could you describe those and how it all kind of plays into the, the, the regional uh, ecology of the Navajo Nation and other areas? Yes, definitely. Spring runoff is definitely beneficial uh, to the Navajo Nation. We do have um, reservoirs that are upstream of the Chinle Creek before it goes through Canyon de Chez. Those reservoirs are Saley and Wheatfields. And we have farmers that rely upon water from those systems. And in order to help alleviate the system, um, what was done as well was to try to do diversions for the benefit of farmers as well to help um, with the amount of water that has been held back as well as, you know, the opportunity for farmers to get started early on their farming. One thing that's important to understand is with those reservoirs, they've been so full to capacity lately that they've been using spillways. I visited on um, yesterday, the Saley and Wheatfields Creeks, and Saley was definitely still using the spillway and downstream okay, Crystal, of Chinle. I'm sorry, we are going to have to take a break, but I'll let you continue when we come back. Pineapples are big business, and the fruit is closely associated with Hawaii. But along with sugar and some other crops, pineapples have a history as a major influence on colonialism at the expense of indigenous people. We'll dive into the legacy of agricultural big business on the next Native America Calling. Cache. Istochorchamealwajiputchitenantetatoyamanteyayupachiateatu. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about floods today. Communities in California and Nevada are preparing for record snowmelt runoff. Are you noticing new weather patterns where you are that put your tribe at risk for floods? Join the conversation by calling in today at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Before break, we were talking with Dr. Crystal Tully Cordova. And Crystal, you were explaining to us how the spillways work uh, with regard to some of these uh, monitoring stations and such there in the Navajo Nation. Please continue what you were saying. Yeah, so I was just saying that we've reached capacity at 
these lake saline wheat fields that the spillways are working, um, where excess water is being released to be able to alleviate the stress on the dam as well. And in addition to that, you had asked, Sean, about what are the benefits of um, snowmelt runoff. So not only does it you know, is it useful for farming and being able to help with those aspects, um, but also having the opportunity to improve vegetation and forage and increase water supply for wildlife and livestock. And the runoff also helps recharge streams, springs, lakes, and groundwater. So definitely benefits all the way around. Thank you, Crystal. And I'd like to go back now to Dr. Lonnie Sinagini. And Lonnie, um, Earlier, I asked Crystal with regard to, to climate change and how big a factor that may or may not be with some of these conditions. Uh, you do a lot of research in this area. What are you learning with regard to climate change and how it's impacting some of these water systems there on the Navajo Nation? Yeah, well, with the Navajo Nation, we, we were mostly seeing a decreasing trend in snowpack um, within like the last few decades. Um, however, um, and so that's something, you know, that's a projected climate change that we're, we're looking to see, you know, in the coming years. Um, but with climate change, you know, everything's so dynamic um, with, like, just the increase in energy in our atmosphere system. So, like, uh, with the, um, this year, you know. All righty. I'm going to go ahead now and bring in our next guest, uh, Joining us from Gardnerville, Nevada, is Lisa Christensen, and she's the Washoe Tribe Emergency Operations Center Operations Planning Chief. She's from the Washoe Tribe. Lisa, welcome to Native America Calling. Good morning. Well, please, Lisa, tell us what's going on there uh, in Nevada, and, and what are the flooding threats right now that the Washoe Tribe is facing? Um, so I just wanted to give everybody kind of an idea where we're located. We're located east of South Lake Tahoe. We have four communities that are in two states and three different counties where um, we're primarily impacted by flash floods, rain, and snow melt from atmospheric storms. Uh, we are close to proximity of the Sierra Nevada's foothills and relatively elevated and steep terrain. We both have benefits and challenges. Our main problems are severing, severe Ponding, damage to homes, buildings, burn scar, mud and debris slides impact major transportation, um, access routes, including our sacred sites that have the irreversible damage to um, the sites from the runoff and burn scars, as well as uncontrolled runoff erosion on the roads, the drives, collapse, and erosion of our graves. We have to have out, you know, go out and repair our different um, cemeteries in our areas here. Uh, each of the communities are impacted differently with river flows and management systems. We're all, you know, at the mercy of our counties that are around us, which we do have good partnerships with. Um, most significant impacts are region-wide, the whole state of Nevada, from, with flood effects and access, from the availability of critical and medical emergency resources, as well as the impact regional flooding have on daily resources, our foods, fuels, and medication being transported to the community that can be cut off by major floods. 
Um, we have five to six major rivers in our region. An ability for elders and vulnerable members to reach medical services that may need an assistance. Okay. And now, Lisa, did I, did I hear you mention earlier uh, one of the impacts is, is ponding? Was that correct? What, is that what I heard you say? Yes. Okay. Can you, because I, I, I'm not familiar with that term, ponding. What is, is that like water pooling up kind of thing? or? It's, yes, water pooling up in the um, lower parts of our communities, because one of our communities is right up against a, a mountain. So the lower parts in the homes that have the um, cellars in their homes, the ponding is sitting at their homes and flooding inside of their homes. And if it doesn't be, you know, taken care of, then we're going to have mold issues that we have within those. Okay. Well, these all sound like really, really serious impacts here. Tell us more uh, about these homes and these uh, flooded basements. Has there been significant property damage? Um, not None that have been reported. We usually can catch them with sandbagging because from history, historic information from the homeowners, they know what's going to happen. Um, we, there's really no mitigation efforts that we have for um, those homes. So we sandbag um, to prepare and help with the flow and runoff management. Um, so there hasn't been any, but we have a crew that goes out and makes sure that we have sandbags available in each of our communities with the sand. And if we have to, the elders will have um, the appropriate amount of sandbags around their homes. And in addition to the sandbags, what else are you folks able to do to prepare for these emergencies? Um, well, we usually work off our mitigation plans, our histories that we had in there that our elders helped us write. We're one of the few or tribes in the state of Nevada that have our own mitigation plans, so we do rely heavily on the information that's in there. Um, we, Like I said, our communities are small and we're in uh, different counties, so we have to rely on those partnerships to help work with our counties to help mitigate those um, irrigation ditches and things like that. You mentioned this mitigation plan, and I'm curious to know, is that similar to like an emergency management plan for fire risks or other types of natural disasters, or is it approached differently? Yes. This is a plan that helps us mitigate against any natural or man-caused emergencies. And what um, about... It, it has uh, all of, you know, and, and any kind of significant impact that we can have, you know, pandemics, floods. Um, fires, earthquakes, and, you know, or, um, helps us have something written in there for us to help respond to, mitigate our issues that we're going to have from anything that may be coming every year. And it's only getting worse. Uh-huh. Well, here we are, Lisa. It's only the beginning of May, and, you know, spring is just, just at the, the very beginning. And I'm thinking... What do you anticipate now as we move into the summer months and perhaps monsoon season or perhaps uh, forest fires this summer? Are you folks uh, prepared for, for some of these other factors that could arise in the coming months? So, yeah, just going back to relying heavily on the projects that we have in our mitigation plan, uh, moving along with, uh, you know, fire breaks within our communities. And we do have a lot of allotment lands out in our Pinet Hills, which are being affected heavily with um, 
our the wildfires that we have are we rely on the food sources that we have out there that are going away with all these fires every year that we have. And what about uh, surrounding communities, other municipalities or counties? Do you work in in partnership with some of these other governmental agencies or groups to to address these issues uh, as a combined effort? Yes, we do. So our counties have local emergency planning committees where we have all the shareholders in our counties. They include the tribes. We have a voting seat on those positions so we can help mitigate or recover from and we do we're NIMS compliant here with the Washoe tribe so we start local first with our counties before we start going to our state and our FEMA partners so we do work closely with them we have monthly uh, spring runoff calls with meteorologists and you know that inform us on what's coming in the future so at least we can be prepared okay it, it is really concerning Lisa, to hear you mention uh, the impact on some of these graves, and I, I'm just, I mean, obviously, if you're not comfortable sharing too much information, I understand, but what are the basic protocols for, for dealing with something like that when you have, um, you know, some of these remains that uh, are, are, are damaged and, and, and come to the surface, perhaps, by these, these conditions? So the Washoe Tribe has a burial committee that has the locations of our old old bear cemeteries and then our new ones that are currently being used so we monitor those um a few years ago few years ago in the cemetery up there genoa we did have remains and caskets and things like washout we were involved in that but um the burial committee would come to the eoc we would send our crews out they would go out and you know fix the caved in sites um, you know, 400-pound uh, headstones are inside the site, so we have to have heavy equipment and things like that to remove them out. Um, we have a cemetery over here that's family-owned where it was washed out and headstones are being moved, and so it's going to be hard for us to locate and um, find where the grave site is. So it's, it's really difficult, especially with the sediment, that comes down off the hills, so we're not, we're going to have a hard time finding where our people are up there. Okay, yeah, I can, I, I can just uh, imagine uh, what that must be like. Well, Lisa, really appreciate you joining us today and giving these updates, and of course, thoughts and prayers uh, to the folks in your community as well. And I would like to go back to Dr. Sinajini now. Lonnie, um, I, I know that you do a, a lot of research there and, and you pay close attention to what's going on there within the Navajo Nation, but you also do some work there in northern New Mexico, and I know you're familiar with some of the, the flooding issues and, and waterway issues impacting the Pueblos. Can you talk about those as well? Um, sure. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of um, the, the watersheds out in northern New Mexico have experienced some wildfire, wildfires, um, and so, you know, the earlier spring runoff, you know, uh, with, with climate change, earlier spring runoff um, and uh, typically leads to a prolonged dry season, which means, you know, we have a higher frequency of wildfires. And so with the, with the wildfires and the burn impacts, um, 
Alrighty, folks. Um, just, just, just not quite working out for us today. <laughs> Trying to talk with Dr. Lonnie Sinigini. I do apologize for that very much. But at this point, I would like to bring in a couple of more guests that we have on our show today, and uh, really excited as well to introduce these folks. Joining us now from the Bishop Paiute Reservation in California is Sandra Worley. She's the Public Works Director for the Bishop Paiute Tribe, and she's a member of the Bishop Paiute Tribe. Hello, Sandra. How are you doing? Good morning, Sean. Thanks for reaching out to us. Absolutely. And also joining us uh, from the Bishop Paiute Reservation is Brian Atkins. He's the Environmental Director for the Bishop Paiute Tribe. Brian, welcome to you as well. and good morning. Well, Sandra, I'd like to begin with you, and we're, we're learning about some of these runoff issues uh, throughout the West. Tell us, how is snowmelt runoff impacting the Bishop Paiute Tribe there in California this spring? Yeah, it's gotten us into a mode that we've that I've never experienced before. Um, it's basically just getting out the message that we need to um, prepare ourselves for the high runoff, and asking the public to take extra effort to ensure that their property is free of any debris that may cause um, obstructions in the waterways. Um, asking them to clean ditches and move all that stuff out of the way, respect signs. And because we've never been in this situation before, so it's a new thing to us, and we're just trying to do our best to um, figure out ways how to um, help our people and keep them safe. So you've never had to deal with this before. Well, well give us some more information. I mean, how much damage has been done? How much water is there? Help us out. Fill, us in, fill in the details, please. Yeah, that probably would come from Brian. He knows okay. the statistics on that. Sure, sure. Brian, please feel free to chime in. Oh, yes. Um, hello. Um, good morning. Um, yeah, so we're looking at a snowpack of over about 300% um, historic snowpack. Um, we're in the eastern Sierra, um, about 4,000 feet high desert. Uh, we're at the receiving end of uh, Bishop Creek, which um, headwaters in uh, in the mountains that uh, come end of May, early June, uh, it's estimated will be the peak of the runoff. Um, we have uh, we, we have uh, started some uh, what we call a spring, uh, a stream spring cleaning team where we're going out and um, and cleaning out uh, culverts and uh, bridge crossings. We have quite a few um, roads that, that cross over. We have about three miles of, of stream on the reservation. Uh, fortunately, we have a um, several years ago, we partnered with uh, FEMA uh, to get a uh, updated uh, uh, flood, uh, flood map of the reservation, which we've shared with the county. And um, that uh, we're using that to prioritize our efforts to to pinpoint some of the, the places that we think may may have some flooding. Um, and it could be, this is a 100-year flood map, um, historic snowpack, it, it, this could be a, a minimum, uh, what we're seeing uh, coming, coming down the, the creek towards us. Okay. So, Brian, it sounds like uh, with regard to this FEMA plan and such, you folks knew this was coming. You knew this was a possibility. So 
sounds like you were able to get a lot of your ducks in a row in preparation. Um, we're trying, trying to, yes. Uh, we, we, uh, similar to the other, um, uh, your other speaker, uh, we have a, 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 a multi-hazard um, uh, mitigation map uh, that details uh, fire, uh, drought, um, earthquake, and, and flooding. Um, and currently we're working with the County of Inyo on a multi-jurisdictional um, plan right now that we hope to, um, you know, uh, work together. Uh, this is going to be a multi-jurisdictional type of uh, events here coming up. So, uh, uh, yeah, so we, we live very closely to these, these waterways and ditches, so we're taking it uh, very seriously. All right. Well, anybody listening today, if you've ever experienced anything like what we're describing today, if you've ever come out and seen your car uh, with water all the way up to the doors or to the tailgate on a truck, or you've ever gone out in your basement and found two feet of standing water, give us a call. Tell us what that's like. 1-800-996-2848. We'll be back with more guests and more conversation right after this break. Support by Ramona Farms, offering wholesome and delicious foods from our heirloom crops as our contribution to a better diet for the benefit of all people. We are honored to share our centuries-old farming and culinary traditions online at RamonaFarms.com. Trauma touches nearly everyone. The Native American Social Work Studies Institute educates social workers for careers as a community health worker with culturally relevant training. Info at online.nmhu.edu. New Mexico Highlands University supports this show. This is Native America Calling. We're talking about floods and how to prepare for them. How does infrastructure in and around your community handle runoff from nearby mountains? When these safety nets fail, how does flooding affect your community? Give us a call at 1-800-996-2848. Once again, that number is 1-800-996-2848. Tell us what you know about flooding risks in your community We'd really like to hear from some callers today. Again, that number, 1-800-996-2848. On the line right now in Bishop, California, the Bishop Paiute Reservation in California, we have Sandra Worley and Brian Atkins, and they are both uh, involved with public works and environmental projects. And Sandra, I, I want to ask you, you know, before break, we we're talking with, with you and Brian uh, about what's going on. And just tell us a little bit about uh, how the community is impacted, families and individuals and, you know, children needing to go to school. And of course, with the, the warmer months coming up and summer vacation, I mean, how is this impacting just people there on the ground, Bishop Paiute tribal members? Yeah, since we've been in such a drought, like one of the other speakers had said, our wa our ground saturation from the um, rainfall that we recently had in February, March, that um, brought the groundwater to you know straight up to the top, and several of the homes were flood our um, driveway were flooded. We took our utility um, team in there to. Uh, help these people get out of their driveways and help our elders food program get in there to service them food. And we had to do a lot of uh, restoration because of the so much rain that fell. We, uh, one, even the school called us and said that there's one family trap. They can't get out to get the kids to school. The mother can't get out to get to work. So we went in there with our trucks and our, um, 
back holes to make them a road so they can get out. And we've never seen that here before. So this wow. is a historic um, moment for us. We had high um, snowfall here down in the valley where we're at. We're in between two mountain ranges in the Owens Valley. And um, we did what we could, plowed roads and, you know, tried to keep the um, snow out of the way, plowing into driveways. And then afterwards we had to come through and repair the driveways. So it was a lot of work. So we kind of had a... um, a test of the water already of where it's going to most likely flood, where it's going to affect people. So that's, um, you know, just something new to us all. And we're hopefully that um, everybody's taking this serious and all the community members are taking it serious, that this is something that will propose a threat to us. And it's probably not the end. Yeah. Yeah, Sandra. And I want to ask you, are you folks uh, using sandbags as well to kind of buffer and shore up some of these at-risk areas? When the rain came, um, there was a lot of um, bags that we had gotten from the county, and we set up uh, different places where the community members can go and fill up those sandbags and then take them back to their homes and use them wherever they wanted to. And we even had our our workers out there filling sandbags up for for the community members just to come and take and distribute wherever they needed them. And so growing up uh, there, I'm sorry, Sandra, go ahead. It's just the whole community, you know, coming together to help each other. Mm-hmm. And having grown up there on the Bishop Paiute Reservation, uh, did you ever imagine that you'd be dealing with this these kind of issues here in 2023 with regard to flooding and all of this water? Not even. I, I don't even remember from maybe about when I was six years old seeing a snow this high in the valley because usually it snows here and within one day it melts. It's gone. And I never hardly ever remembered except for that one time maybe when I was about eight or nine, when there was snow down the middle of Bishop, the city of Bishop, right in the, between the lanes going north and south. Yeah, so this is, you know, something I've really never seen or paid attention to. When Mm -hmm. I was a kid, it was fun, but now it's not so fun. (laughs) I can imagine, yeah. (laughs) Because there's more people that need to be protected. Absolutely. And homes, homes are at risk. Brian, of course, uh, the next challenge here is, is heading into fire season. Um, what do you folks have planned in terms of how to prepare for that? Um, well, we have a um, uh, fuels program, uh, kind of a year-round fuels program uh, focused on uh, defensible space for the reservation uh, access points, uh, driveways, um, keeping vegetation, uh, keeping the driveways and smaller roads free of uh, vegetation so to uh, enable emergency access. So we're going to be continuing and actually increasing our efforts uh, with that. Um, we also, is, as part of that project, we have some um, fuel, what we call fuel breaks, um, 
around the edges of the community and places where they aren't uh, paved um, mm -hmm. to mitigate any off-reservation, on-reservation spread of fire. Um, yeah, so those are those are some of the things we um, before even this uh, this flooding uh, 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 upcoming flood that we've been working on, and we're planning on continuing. Now, this flooding now, this added moisture, will that alleviate some of the risks with fire season this year, or will it, most of it have dried out by the time fires get going? Uh, I I expect it. Um, I expect the rains that we had um, in that we had about four inches of rain, um, kind of what's typically our, our, our annual rainfall uh, happened over about a week in January. Um, and so what that's expected, what we've started to see already is a lot of, um, a lot of grasses, um, weeds growing up in places that we haven't seen them before. And that's all going to dry out by late uh, midsummer. And so that's, um, just basically working with the community, we've started a uh, uh, fuel uh, fire safe um, council. We're planning on a couple meetings this this early this spring summer, uh, talking to the the community about how to deal with some of these dry grasses that are are a product of all the rain that we received. Okay. Well, Brian and Sandra, I want to thank you both for joining us today and giving us some updates there from the Bishop Pike Reservation in California. And we will be thinking about you folks as well going forward and, and wishing you all safety. Uh, let's go ahead and go to the phones now where we have Chanupa. He's listening on Keeley, of course, up in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. Hello, Chanupa. Hey, Sean. Thank you all for having me. Um, the guests that are on, listen, for you guys staying alert on what's going on with this global warming and climate change. We always remember this. Up here in the Black Hills, the Strongheart Warrior Society stood up to these corporations that were trying to drill for lithium. And during that time, it messed up a lot of the potholes and different other things because of the the snow runoff on top of the Black Hills coming down to the reservation. And for people not to be aware of that, they don't understand that these corporations, irregardless of what the human race says, always remember that the independent structure will always be in place to neutralize their virtue to try to test drill. And that's one of the things that we're going to be facing here in the next uh, three, three or four months because of these corporations trying to test drill for lithium, since they went to all the other countries and got run out, they're now they're trying to do it in Indian country. So I thank you guys for stepping up, and thank you too, Sean, for having this subject on today's show. Well, thank you, Chanupa, for calling in. Appreciate all your passion, all your energy that you bring in as a caller on our show. And uh, I'd like to go back now to Dr. Crystal Tully Cordova. And, and Crystal, you know, here we are. We're talking with folks from Native communities all over the West, the Southwest. We're talking about climate change risks. We're talking about uh, record snow melts. We're talking about now, of course, mining and drilling. And I mean, what else? What are some other factors and some other issues that we really need to be paying attention to with regard to these floods and some of these other environmental issues that are are just emerging with such ferocity now in some of these native communities out west. Yeah, and so just um, you know, thinking about where the water is going to in Chinle Creek, it's going 
to the San Juan River and will eventually flow in the Colorado River. And so although our reservoirs on the Navajo Nation are, you know, pretty much full to capacity, um, today I was looking at Lake Powell, for example, which is downstream of the Navajo Nation and of the upper portion of the Navajo Nation, and it's at 24% capacity. And that's still very low. And so when you think about the Secretary of Interior putting out for the Colorado River Basin a notice of intent that the current operating guidelines are not sufficient to meet hydrology or the forecasted hydrology for the future, there's a lot of um, work being done to be able to try to address the wet water not equaling the paper water. And what does that mean? When I say paper water, I'm really referring to, you know, the water that may be needed by participants that have water rights. Um, but then the the wet water is really what Mother Nature provides uh, to the system. And so having those challenges really provides limitations for participation of tribes, particularly in the Colorado River Basin, because the foundational compact of the Colorado River Basin was signed in 1922, and Mexico and tribes were not at the table to be signatories to that. And when you think about the need for participation, um, fast forward to today, a lot of tribes do have water rights, but a lot of the conversation, although we've had a record year, it's important for um, those listening to understand that one good year is not going to be able to compensate for the 20-plus years of drought that we've been experiencing in the West. And associated with that, that's why there's so much effort and, con and talks about conservation, particularly in the lower Colorado River Basin. And right now, you know, it's just important for tribes to be aware of proposals that are being presented. Um, there's the draft supplemental EIS. Essentially, it's a stopgap measure in um, because the 2007 interim guidelines are not sufficient to meet hydrology today. It will proceed as a document that will operate Lake Powell and Lake Mead from 24, 25, and 2026. There's still a need for long-term planning, and that long-term planning is the need for post-2026 efforts that are inclusive for evaluating the impacts on tribe because we have um, significant water rights for the Navajo Nation in the upper basin, and it's important for us to consider as we work to resolve water rights in the lower Colorado River Basin. Crystal, thank you for providing all that information, and it really helps us understand here that uh, the need for sound policy uh, with regard to some of these issues is at the forefront as well, and I really appreciate your analogy there, wet water versus paper water. That really helps us put things into perspective, and you also mentioned the importance of long-term planning, and I'm also curious about the infrastructure because I know, you know, it, infrastructure it needs to be updated it needs to be repaired and and how sound is a, a lot of this infrastructure that these communities are so dependent on with regard to flooding and, and water risks going forward so speaking generally about infrastructure water infrastructure within tribal communities I, there's definitely one a need for 
um, capital infrastructure within tribal nations. There's aging infrastructure that we deal with. There's water quality challenges that we deal with. And there can also be production challenges, meaning, you know, a lot of some of the tribes rely on groundwater. And so in the face of climate change, speaking specifically for the Navajo Nation, we're trying to create and um, provide a more sustainable water future for Navajo residents, not only for today, but into the future. And how do we do that? We do that by protecting the water rights that have been secured, um, moving to resolve the water rights that have been yet to be secured. We're building projects like the Navajo Gallup Water Supply Project to be able to diversify our water portfolio to not only be reliant upon groundwater, but also be, you know, add that surface water component. We have eight Navajo communities on the eastern side of the Navajo Nation that are getting their water from the San Juan River. And there's work um, being done now constructing the San Juan Lateral that will allow the remaining communities of those 43 Navajo Navajo communities that will be benefiting from the Navajo Gallup Water Supply Project. And so as we proceed forward, the opportunity with the unprecedented funding that has become available through uh, ARPA, through bipartisan infrastructure law, as well as, you know, now the Inflation Reduction Act funding provides the opportunity for tribes to be able to secure their water future, particularly with regards to infrastructure. And, I mean, a part of that infrastructure, right, is also having energy infrastructure because how do you convey that water through public water systems? You can't do it without energy. And so it's important for people to not only consider the energy and water nexus, but also the food nexus, because a lot of times in these conservation um, pushes, there's, you know, a significant push to cut agriculture. But it's important to consider for listeners to consider where their food comes from. Well, folks, that is all the time we have for our show today. I want to thank all of our guests, Lisa Christensen, Dr. Crystal Tully cordova Dr. Lonnie Sinigini, Brian Atkins, and Sandra Worley for what's been a really timely discussion on floods and their impact on Native communities in the Southwest. Join us next week for another lineup of discussions about Indigenous topics, starting with a look at the not-so-sweet history of sugar and pineapples. That's coming up on Monday. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. Our producers are Andy Murphy and Sol Traverso. Marino Spencer is the engineer with help this week from Roman Garcia. Show McPolin is the digital producer. Nola Daves-Moses is the distribution director. Bob Peterson is the network manager for Native Voice One. Clifton Chadwick is our national underwriting sales director. Antonia Gonzalez is the anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather is our chief operations officer. The president and CEO of Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. Have a safe weekend. I'm Sean Spruce. Program support by Penguin Random House, publisher of Probably Ruby by Lisa Bird Wilson, a novel about a Métis woman adopted by white parents who goes in search of her identity. More on this and other stories at prh.com slash stories of the land. Support by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, working to ensure tribal colleges and universities are included in our higher education system. Information on 37 tribal colleges and universities at AIHEC.org. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian country has put its trust in Amerind 
providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian country are Ameren's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Ameren.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.